editor's note of ludwig van beethoven this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recording by david wales ludwig van beethoven by pitts sanborn editor's note the late pitts sanborn wrote this booklet under the title beethoven and his nine symphonies and stated in a short preface that it made no claim to originality and no secret of its indebtedness to the masterly treatises on the same subject i have left mr sanborn's pages on the symphonies virtually intact and have only expanded the work a little by incorporating here and there matter about other major works of beethoven's especially some of the concertos overtures uh, piano and vocal works besides certain of the greater specimens of his chamber music even if this procedure probably lends the booklet a patchy character i have followed it in order to supply a rather fuller picture of the composer's creative achievements no more than my predecessor do i make the slightest claim to originality of matter or treatment or deny my indebtedness to thayer and paul becker herbert f peaser end of editor's note Part One of Ludwig van Beethoven by Pitt Sanborn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Ludwig van Beethoven was born on December sixteenth, seventeen seventy, at Bonn, then one of the most important cities on the Lower Rhine. Though Bonn was German and Beethoven's mother and his father's mother were both Germans, he was of Flemish descent through his father's father, a native of the country that eventually became Belgium, whence the Van in the name. Louis van Beethoven, a tenor singer, went to Bonn in his youth and promptly became a court musician to the resident Archbishop Elector. His son, Johann, Beethoven's father, was also a singer in the elector's employ, but he was a worthless fellow, who was fortunate, however, in having as wife a woman of character. Realizing that his son Ludwig had been born with uncommon musical talent, he had the child begin to study violin and piano very early, with the idea of putting him forward as a prodigy, as Mozart's father had done but young Ludwig was less precocious than Mozart and rebelled strenuously against the enforced training. However, he did appear at a concert on March 26, 1778. So strong was the boy's musical gift that it triumphed over every obstacle, including his own childish reluctance, and the elector thought it worth while to send him to Vienna, then the musical capital of Europe. He had now been composing for several years, and Haydn accepted him as a pupil in counterpoint, an arrangement that did not turn out altogether to Beethoven's satisfaction. He studied with other teachers in Vienna, and in March 1795 made his first public appearance in that city, playing his own piano concerto in B-flat major this date marks the beginning of a kind of recognition that could only spur the young composer on to the activity that in a nature so vigorous and energetic meant enthusiastic creation of course he wanted to write a symphony mozart dead in seventeen ninety one had left a legacy of forty-nine symphonies haydn the author of many more was in full career at sixty-three they were the world's foremost symphonists 
Symphony Number no. One in C Major, Opus Twenty One. Beethoven's first symphony was brought out at a concert which he gave in Vienna on April second, eighteen hundred. It was immediately successful and within a few months carried its composer's fame all over Germany. In the musical city of Leipzig, it was described as intellectual, powerful, original, and difficult. That was in 1802. Today it is no longer difficult for our accomplished orchestras, but as in the case of other works that have come to seem simple through the passage of time and changes in fashions, it is no easy matter now for a conductor to catch and express the frank joyousness of its youthful speech. The symphony is in the customary four sections or movements. The key is C major yet it does not begin in that key but with a discord in f major which shocked some pedants at the time the slow introduction of twelve measures leads to the first movement proper allegro con brio its pages have spirit gaiety elegance for this symphony has well been termed a symphony of comedy though here and there a cloud may for the moment obscure its sunny brightness the eighteenth century was not over when beethoven composed it and he was still looking at music through the eyes of haydn and mozart in spite of the fact that the student may readily discover beethovenish characteristics that are not derived from either haydn or mozart and distinct intimations of the moods and manners of the nineteenth century to come however comedy itself is not all compact of sunshine and as the german proverb has it laughter and weeping dwell in the same bag this brisk allegro is followed in the then prevailing order by the slow movement andante cantabile con moto in f major and consequently not too slow it is mainly built up on a tricksy tune that no less an authority than professor tovey describes as kittenish the attentive listener should observe in this movement the recurrent passage of dotted notes for drums on g and then on c the drums being tuned not in the tonic but in the dominant yet bold though this device might have seemed it was not wholly original mozart had anticipated beethoven in his linz symphony the third movement in name is the minuet usual in symphonies of the eighteenth century minuetto allegro molto vivace in c major but in reality beethoven was already looking forward to the scherzo italian joke with which he was presently to replace the minuet this movement then is much less the stately dance in triple rhythm than a scherzo of generous proportions rich in modulations and glowing color the scherzo like the minuet always includes a trio section listen in this trio to the delicious dialogue between wind instruments and strings and to the rousing crescendo that ends it just before the repetition of the minuet the finale in c major opens with seven measures of adagio devoted to the gradual release of a scale passage so much accomplished the music plunges into an allegro molto e vivace beginning with this sprightly theme which races along to the conclusion in a whirl of merriment and humorous sallies first three piano concertos beethoven had settled permanently in vienna in the autumn of seventeen ninety two and the body of his work originated of course in the austrian capital 
we cannot however dismiss the compositions preceding the first symphony as wholly negligible the creations of this period are to a large extent relatively small in scale there is a quantity of piano music largely in the form of variations a number of songs and several arias odds and ends of chamber music dances marches and such some of the variations for piano and strings are based on melodies of handel mozart and a number of lesser lights during his bond days beethoven had composed a score for a knightly ballet ritter ballet performed by members of the bonn aristocracy and ascribed at first to count waldstein it was beethoven's first ballet score and preceded by some years his far more pretentious creatures of prometheus written in vienna to a scenario by the noted dancer salvatore vigano the vocal compositions of this early period are not perhaps of conspicuous quality beethoven's best-known song and indeed his most famous though not the best is a setting of Mattheson's adelaide more a cantata than what we have come to classify as a genuine lead considerably later he was to write the cycle on die ferne Gedipte, which together with some of his settings of goethe poems and the stark but majestic die Erregottes aus der natur may pass as beethoven's most memorable achievements in the province of the solo song to his bond days however belongs a genuine cantata the one composed in seventeen ninety on the death of the emperor joseph the second this work survives chiefly because one of its finest pages was later utilized in the last scene of fidelio into which it fits admirably three years before the first symphony beethoven began the first orchestral score he decided to publish this was the b flat piano concerto which though we know it is number two opus nineteen actually preceded the one in c major opus fifteen it was performed for the first time by the composer march twenty ninth seventeen ninety five on the occasion of his first appearance as virtuoso and composer before the viennese public it had been announced that he would play an entirely new concerto on this occasion of the first two annual concerts given for the benefit of the widows of the tonkunstler society thayer following the lead of notabom felt certain that this new concerto was the one in b flat beethoven was tardy in completing it and we are told that two days before the concert the rondo was not yet on paper in spite of illness he wrote it out at the eleventh hour while four copyists sat in the next room and were handed the piece sheet by sheet as soon as the music was set down we know as good as nothing of the public reaction to the work we do know however that the composer was far from satisfied with it and revised the score before playing it in prague in seventeen ninety eight at that he confided to the publisher franz hofmeister that he did not consider it one of his best the first movement has a vigorous and arresting first theme followed by a tranquil songful one some of the cantabile phrases that follow have a rather mozartian character the adagio begins with a devout rather hymn-like melody on which the piano subsequently embroiders the finale a rondo with a playful recurrent theme suggestive of haydn 
contains a second lilting melody and another partly syncopated which though in minor does not lessen at all the high spirits of the movement just as the composer considered the b-flat concerto not one of his best works so he also questioned the value of the subsequent c major concerto written in seventeen ninety seven and not published like the first symphony until eighteen o one yet this concerto is a great advance over its predecessor it contains a beautifully expressive largo and a deliciously brisk and zestful allegro scherzando rondo marked by jocuses forzande on weak beats and various striking rhythmic displacements taken as a whole there is far more of what we recognize as a true beethoven quality in this misnamed first concerto than there is in the so-called second the third piano concerto c minor opus thirty seven composed in eighteen hundred but not played publicly till about three years later is a great advance on its two predecessors from every standpoint the proximity of the more heroic beethoven is immediately evident indeed it probably possessed more of the unmistakably heroic quality than any other concerto written before its time the solo part is different and more striking in originality than anything in the concertos in b flat and c major and a symphonic breadth pervades the work notably the opening movement the second movement a largo in e begins in the piano and is then sung by muted strings there is a passage that strangely enough sounds like a prophecy of the melody of the tenor air salut demur in gounod's opera faust and may easily have suggested it to the french composer before the close of the largo there is a cadenza con gran expression the rondo brings back the key of c minor and is in a variety of ways a most remarkable movement curiously enough the coda appears to have been inspired by the closing page of mozart's c minor concerto which some time earlier had so struck beethoven that he remarked to another musician none of us will ever write anything like that and the composer was not to occupy himself further with piano concerto for several years till in eighteen o six he created his most deeply poetic the fourth in g major opus fifty six and again till eighteen o nine when he wrote his most spacious and lavish the e flat emperor by which time he had behind him several of his monumental productions symphony number no. two in d major opus thirty six beethoven composed the second symphony in very different circumstances from the first the deafness that had first manifested itself several years previously and was in time to become complete had reached such a point that on the advice of his doctor he decided to spend the summer of eighteen o two in the village of heiligenstadt which though near vienna was then deep in the country it was a tragic summer for beethoven as he himself has testified in that infinitely pathetic document known as the heiligenstadt will he would probably have taken his own life but for his determination to consecrate himself with new courage to his art his life was further complicated by a love affair with the youthful countess giulietta gigardi 
whether or not this love affair was as serious as some have maintained the countess preferred count gallenberg to the turbulent composer and accordingly married him in such a setting beethoven undertook his second symphony this work however reflects his tragedy only here and there and in a richer romanticism than his music had previously expressed a romanticism of the nineteenth century as in the case of the first symphony the second in d major has a slow introduction adagio molto but this introduction is much longer and though based in style on haydn's symphonic introductions is instilled with the new romantic freedom and contains a surprising prediction of the ninth symphony in a descending octave passage the allegro con brio that follows starts off with a buoyant theme which sets the pace for an energetic and generally cheerful movement it is in the ensuing larghetto in a minor that we hear in full proclamation the individual voice of beethoven as we have not heard it before this has been aptly called one of the most luxurious slow movements in the world and its richness in melodies has been set down as reckless here are two of them the next movement again in d major is this time called frankly a scherzo not a minuetto this concise allegro is particularly noteworthy for the prophecy in its trio of the trio of the scherzo of the ninth symphony the finale allegro molto in d is a forthright humorous rondo in view of the tragedy of that summer this symphony at once romantic and exuberant might perhaps be best looked upon as an escape brought out on april five eighteen o three at a concert of beethoven's works given by the composer at the theater on der wien vienna it was coolly received being regarded by many listeners as extravagant or enigmatic symphony number no. three in e flat major eroica opus fifty five beethoven's next symphony though begun in the summer of eighteen o three was not completed till the following year as long before as eighteen o two beethoven had declared his dissatisfaction with his works up to that time from to-day i mean to take a new road this symphony boldly takes that road the second symphony still belongs largely to the eighteenth century the third embodies the development with which beethoven revolutionized the symphony in amplitude and opulence no previous symphonic movement had ever equalled or even approached the initial allegro con brio and it may be doubted whether any has subsequently surpassed it sensitive listeners hearing it for the first time may well have cried out with miranda o oh, brave new world there ensues a funeral march that is one of the most tremendous lamentations conceived in any art the scherzo is not only the first but one of beethoven's symphonic scherzos it is also among the greatest for the finale beethoven provides a theme and variations of astonishing diversity and splendor the first and dominating theme of the allegro con brio beethoven very likely remembered from mozart's little bestienne et bestienne overture but he uses it here in the grand manner the funeral march begins with a striking phrase in c minor a tender lyric passage in c major introduces an elegiac element into the sternness of the dirge 
the scherzo allegro vivace in e flat major is an enormously energetic movement and is interrupted by a trio prophetic in its turn of the ninth symphony and including a particularly brilliant and difficult passage for the horns the theme of the concluding variations allegro molto in e flat major beethoven had previously employed in his ballet the creatures of prometheus this theme simple as it appears contains the germ of one of the most remarkable sets of variations ever put down on paper the third symphony is universally known to-day less by its number and its key than by the title eroica heroic everybody is familiar with the story of the relation of this symphony to napoleon bonaparte beethoven sympathetic toward the republican ideals of the french revolution originally hailed general bonaparte as the great liberator but when in may eighteen o four he accepted the imperial crown of france beethoven saw him in an entirely different light such was his rage that he was on the point of destroying this symphony which he had intended to dedicate to bonaparte as a tribute to his services to mankind fortunately he desisted tore bonaparte's name from the inscription and entitled the work eroica it should not be forgotten though that when seventeen years later he heard of the death of napoleon at st helena he remarked i have already composed the proper music for that catastrophe which was an allusion to the funeral march the meaning of the symphony as a heroic work is clear enough to anyone who hears the first movement and the funeral march perhaps only anton rubinstein has ever questioned the heroic quality of the first movement and nobody has or could doubt the heroism of the mighty threnody that follows but to fit the brilliant scherzo and the dazzling set of variations into the picture has occasioned any amount of controversy to go at length into the various theories is impossible here but one might point out that the scherzo has been interpreted as a scene in the hero's camp as an excited crowd waiting for the hero's return and his triumphant address in the trio and as a picture of funeral games at the grave of the hero such as one finds in the epic poems of homer and virgil this last theory being that of berlioz the variations of the finale have been plausibly explained as the nations of the earth bringing each its tribute of flowers to deck the hero's monument the first performance of this transcendent symphony took place in vienna on april seventh eighteen o five symphony number no. four in b flat major opus sixty three years elapsed between the completion of the eroica symphony and the emergence of the fourth symphony the latter was brought out in vienna at a special subscription concert organized for beethoven's benefit in the middle of the latter part of march eighteen o seven little is known about the origin and composition of this work and its relation to the other circumstances of beethoven's life apparently he had been busy with his c minor symphony the fifth when in eighteen o five he laid that aside to write a symphony in b flat this act of his is in line with his general procedure with regard to his symphonies a lighter work following one of deep import 
Robert Schumann, a distinguished critic as well as a great composer, likened the Fourth Symphony as related to the Eroica and the Fifth to a slender Greek maiden between two Norse giants. This comparison, however, lays too much emphasis on youthful ingenuousness, for humor and the joy of living have their place here, and romance as well, with touches of passion and of mystery. One of its admirers has called it a symphony of love. Mystery and romance are evoked in the elaborate introduction, adagio, which this symphony, like the second, possesses, but the mood turns to merriment when the allegro vivace enters with this skipping tune. The second movement, adagio in E-flat major, is related in its luxuriance and melodic richness to the larghetto of the second symphony, establishing another bond between the two works. A hint of the beauty of this movement may be gathered from the first theme. The fervor that breathes through its measures has been attributed to Beethoven's contemporaneous engagement to the Countess Therese von Brunswick, to whom many believe he addressed the famous immortal beloved letter. Berlioz, like Schumann, eminent not only as composer but as critic, accounts for this adagio in a still loftier vein the being who wrote such a marvel of inspiration as this movement was not a man such must be the song of the archangel michael as he contemplates the world's uprising to the threshold of the empyrean for the third movement beethoven returns to the name menuetto allegretto vivace in b flat major trio un poco meno allegro in b flat major though scherzo would do quite as well this minuet is planned on a particularly large scale and is further remarkable for the fact that as in the scherzo of the seventh symphony the trio is played twice and the minuet proper repeated each time the attentive listener should also heed the striking change of key to b flat minor at the fifth bar the exuberant finale allegro ma non troppo in b flat major is perpetual motion in music flashing and glittering with tunefulness and fun sonatas beethoven's work says paul becker is based on the pianoforte therein lie its roots and there it first bore perfect fruit yet it is a curious paradox that he abandoned this phase of composition relatively early producing the majority of his works for the keyboard before he was forty a number of reasons might be cited for this his growing deafness the consequent impossibility of his public appearances as performing virtuoso the circumstance that his intellect outgrew the expressive capacity of the piano, and the immense broadening and deepening of his creative faculties which demanded subtler and more ramified channels of expression. The pianoforte is and always will be a disappointing instrument, he said at one stage of his career, and he was distressed that his compositions for the piano exclusively always produced on him the most regrettable impression oh beethoven what an ass you were he exclaimed on one occasion when someone played him his own variations in c minor 
nevertheless the tremendous series of thirty-two sonatas which began roughly speaking in seventeen ninety five and continued more or less intermittently until eighteen twenty two are among his most moving gracious original adventurous and completely extraordinary achievements they range all the way from the so-called pathetique pastoral and moonlight to the waldstein the appassionata and the programmatic les adieux l'absence et le retour to the mighty series beginning in eighteen sixteen with the a major opus one o one and culminating in the gigantic b flat opus one o six universally known as for the hammerklavier the extraordinarily imaginative ones in e major and a flat opera one o nine and one ten and the transcendent promethean c minor opus one eleven within the cosmic limits of this stupendous succession there stretches a whole world of emotional experience and an incalculable diversity of invention and we may as well mention here though it was not composed till eighteen twenty three that prodigious set of thirty-three variations on a waltz by the publisher diabole which has not its like in the whole range of beethoven's output looking back over the immense panorama of the composer's piano works including variations bagatelles and solo sonatas stretching let us say from the awesome summits of the hammerklavier the c minor and the diaboli variations backward to the comparative simplicities of the sonatas opera two twenty two twenty six and twenty seven leaves one with the dizzy impression of surveying a whole alpine panorama End part one Part two of Ludwig van Beethoven by Pitt Sanborn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Symphony number no. five in C minor, opus sixty seven. As we have seen, Beethoven interrupted work on a symphony in C minor to write his fourth symphony. That done, he returned to the C minor symphony, finishing it late in eighteen o seven or early in eighteen o eight both this fifth symphony and its successor the sixth were brought out in vienna at the same concert on december twenty second eighteen o eight the fifth symphony has turned out to be the most unreservedly admired the most generally beloved and the most frequently performed of all beethoven's nine in fact of all symphonies it is the drama in tone of man's victorious struggle with destiny and it was largely composed in heiligenstadt beethoven's own spiritual battlefield in eighteen o one beethoven had made himself this promise i will take fate by the throat it shall not wholly overcome me the c minor symphony opens with an intensely dramatic figure of four notes which beethoven explains as fate knocking at the door this rhythmic group not only dominates the concise first movement but appears in every succeeding movement the second movement andante con moto in a flat major consists of a graceful flowing set of variations on a brave and lovely theme the uncanny scherzo allegro in c minor introduced merely by the common chord of c minor in arpeggio is the musical embodiment of the terror that walketh by night berlioz said of the opening it is as fascinating as the gaze of a mesmerizer 
an extraordinary bridge passage a supreme example of musical suspense leads from the nightmare of the scherzo finally in a breathtaking crescendo to the triumphant proclamation of the c major finale the effect produced by this symphony on a contemporary composer is indicated in the frenetic outburst of the veteran composer lesieur to the youthful berlioz Uff, let me get out i must have air it is unbelievable marvellous it has so upset and bewildered me that when i wanted to put on my hat i could not find my head symphony number no. six in f major pastoral opus sixty eight in the three symphonies that successively precede the sixth beethoven as we have seen is concerned with man as lover or as hero for the spiritual conflict of the fifth symphony is no less heroic than are the exploits and lamentations of the third the sixth symphony however though quite as personal treats of man from a totally different angle this symphony which the composer himself called pastoral is beethoven's monument to nature it expresses his personal devotion to the country and to what life in the country meant to him he spent a great deal of time in the lovely viennese countryside especially at heiligenstadt but here the country is no battlefield as it had been in the summer of eighteen o two the summer of the heiligenstadt will and it is rather the cheerful sunlit province of nature's healing power copious and quaint is the verbal testimony to beethoven's pleasure in nature a lodging had once been bespoken for him at the coppersmith's at baden near vienna when he saw there were no trees around the house he exclaimed this house won't do for me i love a tree more than a man according to the countess theresa von brunswick his one-time betrothed he loved to be alone with nature to make her his only confidant when his brain was seething with confused ideas nature at all times comforted him often when his friends visited him in the country in summer he would rush away from them charles neat one of the founders of the london philharmonic society who was on intimate terms with beethoven in vienna in eighteen fifteen assures us that he had never met any one who so delighted in nature or so thoroughly enjoyed flowers or clouds or other natural objects nature was almost meat and drink to him he seemed positively to exist upon it michael crenn beethoven's body-servant during the last summer of his life when he was staying at his brother's house at gneitzendorf relates that beethoven spent most of his time in the open air from six in the morning till ten at night ranging over the fields often hatless shouting he had long been completely deaf gesticulating and in general quite beside himself from the torrent of ideas in his mind the character of the sixth symphony beethoven immediately makes plain on the dedicatory page pastoral symphony he calls it or a recollection of country life more an expression of feeling than a painting the word more is important for actually the symphony is in part a painting in tone even if not for the greater part instead of keeping to the traditional four movements this symphony rejoices in five each carrying an identifying title the first allegro ma non troppo in f major explains itself thus the cheerful impressions excited on arriving in the country 
it begins immediately with this theme which really holds the germ of the entire movement and as beethoven develops it becomes as the whole countryside in maytime bloom the second movement andante molto moto in b flat major is more definite in its treatment of nature beethoven calls it seen by the brookside and from the very first note you hear the purling of the water in the lower strings against the murmurous background lovely melodies bud and flower and the whole orchestra seems filled with the tiny numerous noises of summer near the end occurs a specific imitation of the call of birds nightingale cuckoo and quail beethoven himself said that he meant these measures as a joke and others have termed them parody or caricature but joke or parody the unconquerable artist in beethoven has made them of one substance with the heavenly summer light and shade that pervade this interlude of leisure by the brook though not entitled scherzo the third movement allegro in f major is one in fact here the human beings that people this countryside possess the picture beethoven labels the movement jolly gathering of country folk its downright gaiety brings in its train an amusing take-off on a village band especially the befuddled bassoon the middle part of the movement in tempo d'allegro corresponding to the usual trio has been construed by some as a quarrel among the dancers by others as just a rude episode in the dance the jolly character of the movement is evident in these consecutive tunes in the contrasting keys of f and d that started off the last three movements of the symphony are continuous a dominant seventh of f ends the jolly gathering but instead of its resolving an ominous drum-roll in d flat immediately ushers in the fourth movement thunderstorm tempest allegro in d minor the storm without which no country scene is perfect in spite of the formidable title this is by no means a devastating outburst though quite sufficient to postpone festivities memorable is the feeling of tension in the opening measures the distant grumbling of the thunder the first staccato raindrops the disappearing tempest is followed directly by the last movement shepherd's song joyous and thankful feelings after the storm happiness settles on the landscape once more as this light-hearted tune abundantly proves some of the melodies in this symphony are said to be derived from carinthian or styrian folk songs as we have observed the work was originally brought out at the same concert in vienna december twenty two eighteen o eight with the fifth symphony since it had an earlier place on the program it was known for a while as the fifth and the fifth as the sixth but the mistake was soon rectified fidelio and the leonore overtures the period of beethoven's second third and fourth symphonies covers roughly speaking a number of other compositions some of them relatively trifling others of great moment still others of altogether sovereign importance among the first type we can mention the romances in g and f for violin and orchestra composed in eighteen o two the oratorio christ on the mount of olives from the same year and the triple concerto for piano violin and cello which dates from eighteen o five 
the two romances are fluent lyrical movements but without special depth or originality the mount of olives a sort of dramatic cantata which at first enjoyed an almost incredible popularity for which it has paid with speedy and wholesale neglect is a score of extremely uneven value which handles a religious subject in a superficial operatic fashion scarcely in keeping here and there it is possible to find in it interesting details but the chances for a revival of this work which beethoven's intelligent contemporary rocklets criticized in spots as comic are remote the triple concerto though not a masterwork of the first order has been somewhat too harshly dismissed by many and therefore seldom visits our concert halls otherwise the principal productions of these years include a quantity of the brightest jewels in beethoven's crown leaving aside the chamber music which we prefer to consider by itself they comprise the opera fidelio and the three leonor overtures written in connection with it the violin concerto which the composer also arranged as a sort of a piano concerto and the coriolanus overture fidelio which beethoven originally called leonore was begun in eighteen o four a child of sorrow to its composer it was not to achieve the form in which we now know it until eighteen fourteen in the odd century and a half of its existence it has been attacked for countless reasons in spite of which it lives on with an incredible tenacity and obstinately refuses to die it has been reproached for being poor theatre undramatic unvocal patchy and countless other things the book originally adapted from leonore ou l'amour conjugal by the frenchman bouilly and translated into german by joseph sonleitner was cast into its definitive form by friedrich treitzky for a variety of reasons the work failed when it was first performed at the theatre on der wien in november eighteen o five a bold attempt at revision the following season did not manage to keep it afloat and it was not till eight years later that the composer with the clever dramatic surgery of treitzky made a final attempt to salvage it just how drastic were the alterations that the composer and librettist made in the piece can best be appreciated by those who have had the opportunity to examine the reconstruction of the original version which eric prieger published in nineteen o five on the occasion of the centenary of the work from this it can be seen that not only have entirely new musical numbers supplanted the old but the opera or rather singspiel has been reduced from its original three acts to two and that the dramaturgy betrays a vastly more experienced hand the musical changes and condensations of beethoven have in their way been no less thorough far from being bad theatre or unoperatic as sometimes charged fidelio is basically one of the most dramatic and profoundly moving masterpieces the lyric theatre can show the eighteen o five version lacked a number of its most striking musical features the original for example shows no trace of the great outburst abscheulicher which introduces leonore's tremendous scena in the first act and in the second florestan's dungeon air lacks its present und spür ich nicht holde samt duft 
which took the place of the long-winded bravura phrases the composer originally gave the presumably starving prisoner to sing even the present touching close of the dungeon episode was originally quite different it has been often claimed that the previous failure of the work so discouraged the composer that his operatic achievements ended then and there as a matter of fact beethoven to the end of his days never gave up his search for another libretto that he never found it was due to the very special slant of his requirements as for the unvocal character of his writing for voices it is necessary to remember that for all the opera's undeniable exactions generations of great dramatic singers have repeatedly triumphed in the chief roles of fidelio beethoven composed four overtures to his opera the three so-called leonor overtures in c and the one in e major known as the fidelio overture the last-named was written in 1814 for Trotsky's new version of the piece. It is the slightest of them all, and is the one that invariably prefaces performances of the opera. For years controversies have raged as to the order in which the Leonor overtures were written, and for what reason one supplanted the other. The second Leonor was the first used to preface the drama at its 1805 hearing the third introduced the eighteen o six revision theories have been bandied about for generations to account for the first overture which was issued as opus one thirty eight only some years after the composer's death the researches of dr joseph braunstein in his exhaustive study beethoven's leonor overturen eine historisch stillkritisches untersuchung have settled the problem for us the overtures were composed in the order of their numbering. Leonor No. 1 was found too light for its purpose, and after a private tryout was discarded before being publicly performed. Leonor No. 2, less polished and formally perfect than the more structural and popular No. 3, ranks, if anything, as more dramatic, modern, and powerful, even if it does lack the brilliantly jubilant coda that is the particular glory of number three. Neither of these two, however, is a wholly well-conceived introduction to Fidelio, for the reason that both overpower the opera as a whole, and might almost be said to render the drama superfluous actually a fidelio representation profits by the omission of all the leonor overtures though practically every audience these days expects the leonor number no. three quite as a matter of course and ordinarily gets it as a sort of interlude between the dungeon and the concluding scenes a word as to the fidelio overture of eighteen fourteen which has none of the features of the leonore tone poems either thematically or otherwise it is more in the character of a singspiel overture and has as good as no dramatic connection with the opera itself no reference to florestan's dungeon song nor to the off-stage fanfare of the rescue scene yet it leads quite properly into the light moods of the opening episodes of the chattering marzaline and jacquino in the first scene and does not like the second and third leonor completely overweight the remainder of the score at that it is structurally and otherwise fully worthy of its composer and is a more logical adjunct to fidelio than any of the leonor overtures 
actually it is a good deal more interesting in its own right than the average person imagines and merits far closer study than it ordinarily receives the coriolanus overture virtually coincides in point of time with the fourth fifth and sixth symphonies one of its creator's most striking yet economically fashioned works it is in no way related to shakespeare's coriolanus as has frequently been imagined but was derived from a coriolanus tragedy by heinrich von Kollen. yet many including richard wagner have interpreted it in terms of shakespeare's drama the basic emotional pattern of which it can suggest symphony number no. seven in a major opus ninety two after the fifth and sixth symphonies beethoven let several years pass without giving the world another though he continued to compose diligently in spite of uncertain health and ever-increasing deafness at length in eighteen twelve he finished two symphonies which were probably played in private for the first time at the house of the archduke rudolph in vienna on april twenty eighteen thirteen he was unable however to obtain a public performance for either of them till the seventh symphony was given in the great hall of the university of vienna on december eighth of the same year beethoven himself spoke of this work as his most excellent symphony an opinion that not a few have echoed he composed it in all the exuberance of his creative maturity and each of its four movements brims over with the fiery essence of his inspiration the listener is overpowered by the very lavishness of its beauty in this symphony you feel beethoven's genius as something inexhaustible glorying in its own titanic power as of a high god ignoring lesser breeds proud in the knowledge of invincible strength unfettered carefree save where the allegretto acknowledges a divine melancholy coming after the pastoral with its avowed meaning does this symphony mean anything in the sense in which that work and the eroica do beethoven has not helped us with the clue of a title however there are students of the seventh to whom it has yielded a quite definite meaning two of the most eminent are richard wagner and the french composer vincent dandy to wagner the seventh symphony is the apotheosis of the dance to dandy it is a second pastoral symphony full of bird calls and other country sounds of course wagner's definition recognizes the great part played in it by rhythm the seventh symphony begins in its title key of a major with a long introduction poco sostenuto which almost has the importance of a separate movement the second theme of this introduction a capricious tripping melody first given out by a solo oboe is not only one of the most captivating that beethoven ever invented but might very well be taken for an invitation to the dance or perhaps equally well for the caroling of a bird the principal theme of the main body of the movement vivace in a major first announced by the flute dominates the whole movement with its dotted dactylic rhythm this theme in its turn might be a further invitation to the dance or again the piping of a bird the second movement an allegretto opening in a minor on a long-held mysterious six-four chord of the tonic is one of the most remarkable pages in all beethoven 
here if the dance simile is to be preserved it must be a solemn ritual dance thus the movement has been likened to a procession in the catacombs but it has been likened as well to the love dream of an odalisque the third movement is a brilliant scherzo though marked only presto in f major twice it is interrupted by the fascinating strains of the somewhat less rapid trio assai meno presto in d major enshrining a melody that is said to be taken from a pilgrim's hymn of lower austria the finale is an allegro of enormous energy and rhythmic incisiveness whose tumultuous measures have been specifically compared to widely diverse dances some have heard here the rough jollity of dancing peasants a bauerntanz or dance of peasants while to others it is nothing less than the ceremonial dance of those priests of sibylle the coriabantes around the cradle of the infant zeus overtures in eighteen o nine ten or only two or three years before the seventh and eighth symphonies beethoven was commissioned to write incidental music for goethe's tragedy of the netherlands under spanish oppression egmont the f minor overture ranks indisputably as one of his finest if it is less spare and less dour than the one to coriolanus it is a dramatic tone poem but not a theatrical compendium in the manner of the leonor overtures yet it has an exultant coda not wholly dissimilar to the tremendous close of leonor number no. three this coda is identical with the so-called triumph symphony which concludes the play and was actually composed before the overture proper the greater beethoven overtures might be termed offshoots or by-products of the symphonies let us consider them briefly at this stage irrespective of their precise dates of composition not all the rest to be sure rise to the heights of the leonor overtures the egmont or the coriolanus but it is only proper to allude to such symphonic prefaces as the early overture to the creatures of prometheus ballet from the period of the first symphony the tenuous ones for the kotzebue plays the ruins of athens and king stephen the Naumann's fire overture an occasional piece written in eighteen fourteen and the magnificent if slightly known and largely undervalued consecration of the house composed as late as eighteen twenty two for the opening of the josefstedtler theatre in vienna the influence of hendel is powerfully manifest in this late creation which is strongly contrapuntal in its texture but at the same time strangely suggestive from a dramatic even a pictorial standpoint having paid something of a compliment to handel in the consecration of the house beethoven was on the point of composing an overture on the letters of bach's name a couple of years later the formula b a c h represents in german notation b flat a c and b as employed contrapuntally not only by bach himself but by countless other masters since bach's epoch unfortunately though he worked on studies for such an overture till eighteen twenty five beethoven was too occupied with other schemes and never lived to complete it symphony number no. eight in f major opus ninety three 
although played privately in vienna at the archduke rudolph's on april twenty eighteen thirteen the eighth symphony had no public performance till it was brought out at the redoutensaal vienna on february twenty seventh eighteen fourteen the seventh symphony was on the same program and its allegretto was encored as it had been at its world premiere of the previous december but the new work was received with less favor a reviewer generously remarked that it was a mistake to place it after the manifold beauties of the seventh he had no doubt that it would be well received in future if given alone nevertheless this symphony was long neglected in spite of attempts to make it succeed with the public by interpolating the popular allegretto of the seventh beethoven himself called the eighth his little symphony in f in contrast to the great symphony in a seventh yet the indifference of the audience at the redoutensaal annoyed him and he testily remarked that the eighth was much better than the seventh perhaps saying more than he really meant there have been attempts to interpret this symphony to provide it with a specific program one such would make of it a military trilogy and dandy still under the spell of the pastoral detects in it the impression made by nature on beethoven's soul he also hears a peasant band burlesqued in the trio of the minuetto and the hungarian theme employed in the finale suggests to him the presence of gypsy musicians amid the festivities be all that as it may this is the symphony of laughter not the laughter of childlike glee or of a reckless or despairing levity rather it is the vast and inextinguishable laughter that shelley speaks of in prometheus unbound it is the laughter of a man who has lived and suffered and scaling the heights has achieved the summit so he has fashioned his own humor and dares survey the very stars in their appointed courses as integrals of a cosmic comedy only here and there does a note of rebellion momentarily obtrude itself and here and there in brief lyrical repose we have remembering sir thomas brown an intimation of divinity more than the ear discovers the first movement allegro vivace et combrio in f major begins at once with a sprightly tune which tells right away the nature of the work the second subject of the rollicking movement is one of beethoven's most delicious inspirations the second movement allegretto scherzando in b flat major is unique in symphonic literature the persistent staccato ticking that runs throughout it has lent credibility to the story that the movement is based on a canon or round ta 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 lieber metzel sung as a tribute to metzel the inventor of that invaluable mechanical time-beater the metronome at a dinner given for beethoven before he left vienna for the country in july eighteen twelve thayer who investigated the story carefully says that metzel's ta 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 suggested the allegretto to beethoven and that at a parting meal the canon on this theme was sung are doubtless true but it is by no means sure that the canon preceded the symphony there is a story that beethoven himself set the date of the dinner late in december eighteen seventeen in any event the irrepressible sixteenth notes tick away metronomically and here is the airy theme that leads them on 
berlioz says of this movement it is one of those productions for which neither model nor a pendant can be found this sort of thing falls entire from heaven into the composer's brain he writes it at a single sitting and we are amazed at hearing it this would be all very well but for the fact that beethoven's sketches show how mightily he labored over the wholly spontaneous seeming movement when that eminent pessimist the philosopher schopenhauer heard it he declared it could make one forget that the world is filled with nothing but misery instead of a scherzo beethoven proceeds with a stately minuet tempo di minuetto in f major which is not the symphonic minuet of the first and the fourth symphonies but a minuet in the noble manner of the eighteenth-century dance and perhaps not untinged with irony here is its courtly opening melody in the finale allegro vivace in f major the joy is truly unconfined and the music roars and billows with the impact of olympian laughter mass in c major and the misa solemnis aside from the above-mentioned oratorio christ on the mount of olives beethoven's major religious compositions consist of the mass in c major written in eighteen o seven and the stupendous one in d the overpowering misa solemnis begun in eighteen seventeen but not completed till eighteen twenty five the c major mass must not be thought of as an early creation or a thing in the manner of the mount of olives actually it is a work of the composer's maturity virtually contemporaneous with the great leonor overture and the fifth symphony it was written at the instance of one of the esterhazy princes who when he heard the mass infuriated beethoven by asking well my dear beethoven what is it you have gone and done now strangely enough the c major mass for all its unquestionable beauties is treated in rather stepchildly fashion no greater mistake could be made than to compare it with the misa solemnis of a much later date and of basically different premises it expresses in the region of sacred music the joyful and victorious mood of the overture and the symphony says paul becker an atmosphere of simple piety pervades the mass no inner disunion no brooding doubt no unsatisfied thirst for knowledge finds expression here the mass in c is a confession of the composer's faith and is at the same time liturgically practicable it expresses a great artist's confident belief at a time when he was one in thought and feeling with the spiritual powers that be of his period the great mass in d is a totally different proposition it was the slow and gradual outgrowth of one of the periods of beethoven's life where soul-shaking problems crowded ceaselessly upon him he began to work upon it with the idea of producing it at the enthronement of his friend and pupil the archduke rudolph as archbishop of olmutz but as it slowly expanded the composer forgot more and more why he had originally conceived it it became in the grandest and deepest sense an expression of its creator's profoundest philosophies barring three movements of the work none of the misa solemnis was ever performed during the composer's lifetime and singularly enough those three movements were presented at the concert on may seventh eighteen twenty four at which the ninth symphony was heard for the first time 
they had one other performance before beethoven died in st petersburg at the instigation of the prince galitzin the mass in d stupendous creation that it is is far from a practical church work it lacks all pretense of ritualistic use for one thing its vast proportions the length of the individual sections and the duration of the score as a whole would completely unfit it for ecclesiastical ceremony the mass is unchurchly in the highest degree according to becker beethoven breaks through the walls which divide the church from the world his church extends to the limits of his vision his altar is the heart of the universe and he will suffer no dogmatic limitations above the kyrie the composer inscribed the words from the heart may it go to the heart he intended the work for the democratic concert hall rather than for polite social circles the peak of the misa solemnis is undoubtedly the great fugue at vitam venturi of the credo and here incidentally the demands on the singing voices are perhaps more cruel than anywhere in the last movement of the ninth symphony or in the most arduous pages of fidelio only now and then is there a wholly satisfying performance of the mass in d be this as it may there are two pages so extraordinary that no listener can ever fail to be stirred to the depths by them one is the benedictus with its transfigured violin solo and a prefatory orchestral movement so spiritualized that it takes rank by the side of the loftiest slow movements the composer ever wrote the other is the agnus dei and its prayer for inner and outer peace in which beethoven causes the drums and trumpet calls of war to alternate with agonized supplications for peace all the same despite the sublimities of the work and the vaunted morality of the composer beethoven did not hesitate to offer the score to at least three different publishing houses at practically the same time small wonder that before long a london concert agent was writing for heaven's sake don't have any dealings with beethoven if the master was not above attempting a little business skullduggery now and then he did not go about it cleverly End of part two. Part three of Ludwig van Beethoven by Pitts Sanborn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Symphony number no. nine in D minor with final chorus on Schiller's Ode to Joy, Opus one twenty five more than ten years passed after the initial performance of the eighth symphony before beethoven brought out its successor his ninth and last on may seventh eighteen twenty four the earliest part of this period was comparatively unproductive beethoven was profoundly disturbed by quarrels over his guardianship of his nephew karl which eventually were taken to court his health and spirits suffered and meantime his deafness became complete nevertheless his creative impulse found expression in two works of the grandest dimensions the mass in d and the ninth symphony sketches for the symphony were made as early as eighteen fifteen perhaps even earlier and he went to work on it in earnest in eighteen seventeen the premiere took place at the Kärtnertor Theater, Vienna, on May 7, 1824. 
the problems of performance were complicated by the composers using in the final movement a chorus and a quartet of soloists michael umlauf conducted and the solo singers were henrietta sontag one of the most famous sopranos of her day carolina ungar anton heitzinger and j seipelt the difficulty of beethoven's voice parts gave trouble at rehearsals madame sontag and unger begged him to alter their music but in vain madame unger declared in his presence that he was a tyrant over all the vocal organs still at the first performance it was she who led the composer from where he had been sitting in the midst of the orchestra to the edge of the stage to see the excited waving of the audience and to bow these solo parts have lost none of their difficulty for singers and from the sopranos of the chorus beethoven well-nigh demands the superhuman with a view to helping matters some conductors have transposed the finale down a whole tone thus dimming its brilliance and upsetting beethoven's scheme of keys wagner believed that beethoven by having words and singers in the finale had closed the cycle of purely orchestral music others however regard the singers as a mistake and maintain that beethoven recognized his error so devout and searching a student of beethoven as professor tovey while dismissing as absurd the theory of beethoven's discontent with instrumental music holds that every part of the ninth symphony becomes clearer when we assume that the choral finale is right and that hardly a point in the work but becomes difficult and obscure when we assume that the choral finale is wrong though he admits that beethoven long after the production of the symphony told some friends that the choral inclusion was a mistake and that perhaps some day he might write an instrumental finale he sets this down to a fit of depression at any rate the finale stands as written and there is no choice but to grapple with its problems for three movements the symphony is of course purely instrumental of the first movement allegro me non troppo un poco maestoso in d minor ricciotto canudo has written in the beginning was space and all possibilities were in space and life was space it begins pianissimo in empty fifths a descending figure of two notes from the heights to the depths is reiterated while a tremendous crescendo leads to the theme that dominates the movement given out fortissimo in unison and in octaves the entire movement which is well stocked with other themes has the majesty and impetus of a titanic tragedy and its propulsive drama ends with a defiant proclamation of the chief theme now beethoven reverses his usual procedure by postponing the slow movement and introducing a molto vivace in f minor which has been called at once the greatest and the longest of his scherzos a phrase of three notes repeated on each interval of the chord of d minor begins it followed immediately by this fugal subject the enormous vitality and rhythmic drive of the scherzo have deafened some hearers to the bitter strain in the jest joy unalloyed has not yet burst upon the scene and meanwhile beethoven gives us the slow movement a combination of an adagio molto e cantabile in b flat major and an andante moderato in d major 
which as a whole has been described conveniently and with reasonable accuracy as a set of variations on two alternating themes language has been ransacked for words to express the beauty and elevation of this adagio andante its seraphic song is dying away when the initial d minor of the finale presto and fortissimo roughly smites our ears a series of orchestral sections in contrast and conflict occupy the battleground of the earlier pages before the baritone soloist first using words by beethoven himself introduces the human voices and schiller's ode to joy two of the themes brought in here the listener should keep carefully in mind the first is employed later by the baritone in demanding sounds of gladness and the second is the so-called theme of joy now chorus and soloist join valiantly in the good fight for mirth and rapture blended till the symphony ends in the victorious d major paeans vocal and at the very last instrumental of universal rejoicing the burden of schiller's praise of joy is held in these two lines all mankind are brothers plighted where thy gentle wings abide and universal brotherhood is thus voiced by the tenors and the basses in unison chamber music if beethoven's best-known and most widely performed works are the nine symphonies his chamber music represents the most far-reaching diversified profound original spiritualized and at the same time the most problematic manifestations of his genius it is through his quartets when all said that his influence has been most felt in these dwell the germs of more or less everything out of which subsequent music has in one way or another developed if beethoven may be called a musician of the future it is by reason of his sixteen string quartets more than anything else more than all else he composed they continue in great measure to be in advance not only of the master's own time but even of our own it may be said that his chamber music spanned his life the earliest specimens of it date from his bond days from around his fifteenth year from then on they continued intermittently it is true almost up to the time of his death indeed the last composition he completed was a new finale for the b flat quartet opus one thirty to replace the original one the great fugue now opus one thirty three which early audiences could not grasp and which to this very day is a stumbling-block for most hearers although one of the most extraordinary and transcendent pages beethoven ever produced and though at his demise he left a quantity of sketches including studies for a tenth symphony there is every reason to assume that an even more copious quantity of chamber music might have come from his pen had he lived five or ten years longer the mass of such chamber music as he did bequeath us includes sonatas for piano and violin as well as for piano and cello a quintet in c major opus twenty nine for two violins two violas and cello dating from eighteen o one a quintet fugue in d written in eighteen seventeen but published as opus one thirty seven a number of trios for a variety of instrumental combinations several duets and serenades and other miscellany for more or less intimate performance 
lastly the famous septet in e flat for clarinet horn bassoon violin viola cello and double bass opus twenty this septet was composed about eighteen hundred and was at one time so immeasurably popular that beethoven himself wearied of it despite the vogue it long enjoyed it is far from one of its creator's most inspired flights the series of trios for piano and strings constitute something of a counterpart to the great string quartets opus one consists of three such trios and the composer's friend rees wrote that when the three were first heard by the musical world at one of prince lichnowsky's soirees nearly all the foremost artists and amateurs of vienna were invited among them haydn whose opinion was awaited with intense interest the trios caused a sensation haydn who was enthusiastic about them on the whole had reservations to make about the third in c minor and advised the composer not to publish it beethoven took this advice in bad part the more so because he regarded this trio as the best and imagined that his famous contemporary was actuated by envy the truth of the matter was that haydn struck by the bold originality of the score was honestly afraid that the public might not understand it but it is precisely this quality that has lifted the c minor trio far above the other two of opus one the other trios for piano and strings are the pair in d major and e flat opus seventy and the supremely great one in b flat opus ninety seven called the archduke trio because it was dedicated to the composer's friend and pupil the archduke rudolph the opus seventy creations are remarkable for the somewhat restless indeed forbidding quality that fills some of their pages the first has been named the ghost trio on account of an eerie figure that pervades the slow movement and lends it a strangely weird and hollow sound the archduke trio has a spaciousness and elevation particularly in its largo which is a series of five variations on a theme in the character of a hymn wisely enough beethoven placed the scherzo before the profound slow movement as he was again to do in the hammerklavier sonata and the ninth symphony but this scherzo utilizes in its middle part a curious winding chromatic figure that ranks with the master's most striking ideas at this stage of his progress between seventeen ninety nine and eighteen o two beethoven wrote eight of his ten sonatas for violin and piano the most famous of these eight are the fifth the so-called spring sonata in f opus twenty four which opens with a theme of lovely grace and has an adorable serenity throughout its four movements and the set in a major c minor and g major opus thirty which was published with a dedication to czar alexander i of russia the c minor sonata reveals a heroic quality which lends it something of the spirit of the eroica symphony and the closing presto of the finale has about it an element of dramatic grandeur however none of these sonatas quite reaches the level of the kreutzer or the much later sonata in g major opus ninety six the a major opus forty seven derived its name from the fact that it was dedicated to rudolf kreutzer it was first played by a mulatto violinist named bridgetower while the composer performed the piano part 
despite the haste with which the work was composed zerny spoke of four days the sonata written in a very concertante style has remained probably the best known and most widely popular of all beethoven's sonatas for violin and piano the music has an expansiveness and plenitude that surpasses any other work beethoven designed for this instrumental combination the finale a whirlwind presto originally conceived for the first sonata of the opus thirty set influenced schubert when he composed the last movement of his d minor quartet undoubtedly it is the most original not to say the most exciting part of the work more so indeed than the andante with its series of variations so arranged that each artist is given his adroitly balanced share the g major sonata composed in eighteen twelve and first performed by the french violinist pierre rode and the archduke rudolph is unquestionably the most intellectual and the subtlest of beethoven's violin sonatas in any case it has some of the unmistakable traits of the master's later style about it the sonatas for cello and piano and f major and g minor were composed as early as seventeen ninety six and performed in berlin before the king of prussia by beethoven and the court cellist duport but the memorable cello sonatas of beethoven's are the one in a major opus sixty nine one of his most lavish and magnificent works and the c major and d major opus one o two the first named like the kreutzer sonata or the appassionata of the piano series is a creation that needs no defence and no far-fetched explanations on the other hand the opus one o two pair despite their indisputable profundities are among beethoven's more unapproachable and recondite works indeed they have about them a certain hard-shelled quality which scarcely lends them an especially intimate or endearing effect string quartets the great series of string quartets begins with six of opus eighteen published in eighteen o one and concludes officially speaking with the masterpiece in f major opus one thirty five completed only in eighteen twenty six but not printed till somewhat like half a year after his death the half-dozen works constituting the earlier opus had been ripening in the form of sketches and experiments of one sort or another for several years they were finally issued in two numbers each consisting of three scores it is not possible to determine precisely the order in which they were written but that fact is unimportant because the lot do not exhibit any definite line of development it seems that one version of the first quartet in f was completed in seventeen ninety nine beethoven gave it to his friend the young ecclesiastical student karl amenda but asked him to show it to nobody because i have altered it considerably having just learned to compose quartets aright becker finds that the revision tends to a freer more soloistic treatment of the accompanying parts a clearer individualization of the cello part and a greater tonal delicacy in the ensemble effects the main idea of the composition however remained unchanged this is no disadvantage for the fresh naivete of the content and the unassuming clarity of structure are great charms and more would have been lost than gained by over meticulous revision 
as the work stands it is gratifying to the performer and offers pleasant not over difficult problems to the listener the finest part of the work is undoubtedly the second movement an adagio affettuoso ed appassionato it is the richest in texture and certainly the most poetic and emotional of the four when the composer played it to amenda he is said to have inquired what the music suggested to him it suggests a lover's parting replied amenda whereupon beethoven replied well the tomb scene from romeo and juliet was in my mind and becker insists that this adagio is a most moving song of sorrow such as only beethoven could accomplish when he turned to the grave d minor key the second quartet in g major has been christened in some german countries the compliment quartet it is graceful and rather courtly but it reaches none of the depths of the more moving pages of the preceding work the finale however is an instance of that unbuttoned humour that beethoven was to exhibit on later occasions and of which he gave us supreme instances in the last movement of the seventh symphony the eighth symphony and moments in the last quartets the diaboli variations and several of the final piano sonatas opus eighteen number three and d is likewise marked by a quality of gaiety though hardly of the unbuttoned kind the fourth work of the opus eighteen set in c minor is more or less a work distinct from its companions a mood of deep seriousness is common to it and the c major quintet opus twenty nine believes becker but the quartet is full of passionate excitement and he alludes to its mournful earnestness and restless dissatisfaction the very opposite of the cheerful sense of concord with the world and mankind expressed in the other five the quartet in a major has been termed mozartian by some operatic by others certainly it is fluent and lilting music of which the minuet is in some respects the most winning portion even if the final allegro excels it in expressiveness the b flat quartet sixth of the series is particularly significant for the sombre adagio beginning of its otherwise jubilant allegretto finale beethoven has headed this introduction which is called dramatically during the movement la milenconia questo pezzo si diva trater con la più grande delicatezza melancholy this piece must be played with the greatest delicacy this eerie and wholly romantic movement is a true glimpse of the beethoven into whose newer world we shall presently penetrate with the three monumental quartets of opus fifty nine we have entered this new sphere they belong to the year eighteen o six which means that they are of the epoch of the fourth and fifth symphonies the third leonore overture and the violin concerto and the g major concerto for piano beethoven dedicated them to the russian count razumovsky whose name is thus imperishably linked with these masterpieces and it was perhaps as a compliment to this nobleman that he introduced into the first and second of these works authentic russian themes indeed the scherzo of the e minor quartet utilizes that great melody around which more than a half-century later mussorgsky was to build the coronation scene of his opera boris Gudunov. 
the Razumovsky trilogy exhibits Beethoven's inventive and technical faculties at the ideal symmetry they have achieved at the flood tide of his so-called second period. The F major, C major, and E minor quartets are in some ways the most ideally balanced ones he ever wrote, and with all their splendor of form and substance they are still replete with the most astonishing originalities and departures indeed the amazing allegretto scherzando movement of the f major quartet so astounded the players who first undertook to perform it that they imagined beethoven's rhythmic motto theme was intended as a joke at their expense and almost refused to go through with it the adagio on the other hand develops with the utmost richness of sonority and color possible to four stringed instruments two gorgeously song-like themes till it seems as if they had become expanded to orchestral dimensions the e minor quartet less a display piece than its companion works is in a totally different and quite as unprecedented manner while its slow movement molto adagio sounds a deep spiritual note which seems to have been inspired in the composer by a nocturnal contemplation of a starry sky in the country around baden near vienna as for the c major quartet the third of the razumovsky set it closes in a jubilant sweeping fugue which is like a paean of triumph there are two e flat quartets in beethoven's output the first opus seventy four is known as the harp quartet by reason of the numerous passages of plucked strings in the first movement the second is the tremendous opus one twenty seven the former is the dreamier less challenging of the two it is rich not only in a sort of romanticism that looks forward to the age of schumann but also in unexpected effects bearing the unmistakable stamp of the beethoven of the emperor concerto period though in its way it is rather less venturesome than the razumovsky trilogy but the quartet that was written down in eighteen ten the f minor opus ninety five is in another category it is the product of a new period of emotional ferment and a disquiet pervades the score with the irascible pertinacity of a gadfly there is indeed a new quality of storm and stress in this quartetto serioso as the composer himself designated it here he is in no mood for trifling at the moment when beethoven had fought out his battle when he could look back on all the stages of the contest and taste the fruits of victory he became most intensely aware of what it had cost him writes paul becker adding that the autographed title shows that the composer sought no happy solution of his problem in spite of which the f minor quartet does surprisingly enough end on a note of laughter beethoven did not busy himself with the composition of string quartets for another fourteen years this stretch of time is longer than any other interval in the various series of his compositions it must be recalled however that in this space he wrote the last three symphonies the last half-dozen piano sonatas the misa solemnis the definitive revision of fidelio together with its new e major overture the Fernegeliebte song cycle the consecration of the house overture and a quantity of other works only less significant 
spiritually of course he had traversed cycles of experience and had become in an intellectual and artistic sense another being it is almost inevitable therefore that the next great masterpiece of chamber music should lift the curtain on a new creative realm the e-flat quartet opus 127 has been properly likened to a majestic portal opening on the grand landscape of the last four quartets the b-flat opus 130 c-sharp minor opus 131 a minor opus 132 and the relatively short f major opus 135 which may be described as a sort of epilogue to the series there is nothing quite like these last quartets in beethoven's myriad faceted output in its way the series may be said to transcend even the ninth symphony the hammerklavier sonata and the diavoli variations the novelty the explosive qualities the far-darting influence of these works which span the nineteenth century and might even be said to help leaven the musical art of our own time cannot be fully evaluated let alone described in this book it must suffice here to point out that the e-flat quartet places the listener at once in a world of unimagined wonders the very opening measures of the first movement with their powerful chords sound like a heraldic annunciation the second movement adagio ma non troppo e molto cantabile is a series of variations of deepest earnestness it is as if the composer endeavored to bring to his hearers revelations newly unfolded to his searching vision the scherzando vivace that follows is wildly and even uncannily humorous and incidentally the longest of beethoven's scherzos the finale is a sort of triumphal march in which some adventurer from the heavens seems to visit the earth with tidings of gladness to return to his home in the heavens once more the b flat quartet is if anything more unusual and amazing and it is in reality bound by a kind of mystical thematic kinship with the a minor and the c sharp minor quartets which come next this kinship can be traced through the great fugue and is carried through the following quartets with a variety of profound philosophical modifications the seven relatively brief movements of the b-flat masterpiece culminate in the hyper-emotional cavatina of which beethoven said that remembrance of the feelings that inspired him to compose it always stirred him to tears and to this sentimental outburst the harsh if stupendous fugue provided a truly beneficent purgation the later written closing allegro if lively and effervescent is much less truly in the picture while it is risky if not really impossible to speak of the greatest of the last quartets more than one musician would vote for the fourteenth the tremendous one in c sharp minor the composition has seven movements extraordinarily diversified beethoven tried out one of his little pleasantries on schott the publisher and declared at first the quartet was pieced together out of sundry stolen ends and odds a little later he reassured the frightened unimaginative man of business that it was really brand new and subsequently he said impulsively that he considered the c-sharp minor my best 
the introductory adagio non troppo was called by wagner the most sorrowful thing ever said in music all the same the mighty creation after passing through unbelievable emotional transformations closes in a triumphal frenzy which wagner likened to the dance of the whole world the a minor quartet opus one thirty two doubtless begun somewhat earlier than the two preceding is scarcely less amazing its heart is the molto adagio movement which beethoven called song of thanksgiving in the lydian mode offered to the deity by a convalescent it is filled with a mystical quality a religious mood explained by the circumstance that the composer wrote the movement one of his longest when recovering from an illness but the still more amazing fact about this quartet is that some pages of it were conceived for other works it is a strange phenomenon that beethoven on several occasions designed a quantity of pages not wholly sure where they would best fit though in the end his artistic intuitions invariably led him to discover the right place just as he once intended the last movement of the kreutzer sonata for one of the sonatas of the opus thirty set so he at one time intended the a la marcia that begins the final of the a minor quartet for the ninth symphony and the last quartets furnish other instances of the same kind of thing the sixteenth quartet last of the series is rather different from the philosophical quartets that immediately preceded it it is on the whole of lighter weight though its brief lento assé movement touches hands with the ineffable cavatina of the b flat quartet it is the shortest though one of the most moving of beethoven's slow movements the last movement opens with a three-note motto under which the composer wrote the words must it be and followed it with another three-note theme allegro inscribed with the words it must be explanations have been numerous and often far-fetched there is reason to believe that this formula and the musical embodiments of this interrogation and answer must be construed in the light of the master's philosophy with its cheerful acceptance of the inevitable it looks almost like a purposeful reversion to the mood of la malinconia episode in the b flat quartet of opus eighteen end of part three end of ludwig van beethoven by pitts sanborn